0: Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. Hey, good morning, everyone. How you doing? Doing all right. Okay. Well, it's good to be here at Verdun. We're in four places today uh, as a church. So we're at Lobethal. We're at Allgate, we're at Mount Barker, we're at Verdun. We're kind of stitching up the Adelaide Hills here, it's crazy. Um, and Dave's preaching at Mount Barker. Uh, Leona sent a text earlier this morning and said, oh, I've had this idea, maybe I could go to Mount Barker and um, visit them. And she, like, she's asking me, what do you think? I said, that's, go for it, that's a great idea. So Leona's there as well. Uh, so um, yeah, good to be here uh, with you at Verdun. The next two weeks, Mount Barker uh, will meet. And uh, at 10, so if you do sleep in, you can always make it there by 10. A um, little story this morning, I get up fairly early Sunday mornings. It's not a boast, it's just what happens. So I'm up about a bit after 5 o'clock, and I, at the moment I go up to the old Mount Barker kind of manse, uh, which is on Victoria Road, and you know I, I just prepare there. I, I actually take my, my little boombox thing in there and put on some worship music, and just spend time singing and worshipping. Um, so by the time I get here, I'm exhausted. I've had like two hours of worship already, you know, <laughs> praying, preparing the message. And then, then I kind of zip back home and like pick Amanda up and, and off we head off to church. <laughs> so I go to, back home this morning and um, and I'm like, you know, I don't know if you're married and, you know, you have different ways of getting ready. Um, it may not be a male-female thing, it might be, but if I need to go out from getting up out of bed, I can do that in about four and a half minutes. <laughs> I, I can work out what I'm wearing, I can have a shower, do what I need to do, grab a bit of toasting while I'm having a shower, and I can be out the door in about four and a half minutes. I'm ready to go. But apparently, that doesn't work for everyone <laughs> in a marriage situation, <laughs> And um, different people need different regimes of getting ready. So I rock in, you know, a bit after Adam. like, okay, I'll be ready to go in five minutes. And the man's like, the service doesn't start till 10. I said, no, it's 9.30. She goes, no, we're at Mount Barker this morning, aren't we? You're preaching there. I said... No, I'm preaching it for done. Dave's preaching it, Mount Barker. We're going to get going now. And suddenly we worked out what was going to happen from that moment. and, And I felt really bad because I'm speaking about communicating the gospel, sharing the gospel this morning. And it's like, Nick, learn to communicate with your wife, where you're preaching, what you're doing on a Sunday. So my apologies to Amanda. And thank you for getting ready even a bit quicker than you might have wanted to. Um, The last couple of weeks, we've been looking at sharing the gospel, uh, communicating the good news of Jesus. Uh, Dave started at our 150th anniversary with Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20, the Great Commission, and Jesus' manifesto, his declaration to his people, to his followers, uh, that this is what I want you to focus on. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I will be with you always. It's a great commission. And then last week, um, focused down into, into sharing our faith, into being able to communicate that with others. So we, we're kind of in this... Space for a couple of weeks, a few weeks, just bringing the church back after we've kind of been through almost a couple of years of, of the amalgamation journey and um, we had our big 150-50 celebration. It's time to, to kind of get back to normal church business, normal church life, if you like, and to make sure we're putting the key things at the centre uh, and making sure we're obeying Jesus and doing what he's called us to do. But I do know after, you know, being around church for a while that when pastors kind of get up and talk about sharing our faith with other people, there's probably a couple of reactions happening for you. Now, one of them is outwardly, you're like, you there you're going, yeah, we should do that. We need to share our faith. We need to talk about Jesus with other people. I, I agree, we need to do that. And then there's another conversation inside that people can't see and you're going... I'm never going to do that. <laughs> There's no way I'm going to talk to Je- my friends, my workmates about Jesus. It's just not going to happen. I'm happy for someone else to do that. I'm happy for God to appoint someone else to talk about Jesus, but that's not me, man. And and that's okay. And we'll look in the mo- in, in the minute in a moment at the Book of Philippians, the Letter to the Philippians, and the first chapter, and we'll see that the early Christians too um, had some misgivings and felt some challenges about sharing their faith, and that's normal and that's natural. And a few reasons why I think it's hard for us to think about, or for some of us, some of us are evangelists or we've got the gift of the gab and and we're okay. We're kind of easy in this space. It's easy for us to talk about our faith, articulate our faith and we're not not concerned about that. But that's not everyone. And some of the reasons I think is it it can feel it's a bit unnatural or a bit weird um, to do that, especially around family, friend environments, workplace environments where, where you're a minority, you know, a believer in, in a group that, that doesn't believe perhaps it can feel, how does that work? It can feel clunky. How do you just kind of insert Jesus into a conversation? Um, it's not part of our culture. Our culture and the church has been shaped by this. It's, it's kind of been um, nurtured to be a privatised faith. Like, you know, you believe and that's good for you if that makes you happy. But don't you dare try shoving the Bible down my throat. Or, you know, keep that to yourself. The faith is a private thing. And as long as you keep it locked up in your little faith heart there, everything's going to be fine. (laughs) But don't you talk about it. Don't you start telling me about it. Don't you intrude in my life. And that can impact us sometimes in the church. Um, We can feel unequipped, underprepared. I just don't know what I'd say. What if I get a curly question? What if someone's like, well, where did God come from? Or what about all the suffering in the world? Or what about this? What about that? And what if I just don't know the answer? I'm going to look like an idiot. So we can feel ill-prepared, under-equipped. We can feel imperfect. Man, my life's not really all together. I've got some challenges. I'm still working it out. Who am I to be telling someone else about Jesus? Who am I to be talking about God? Like, I just feel I'm not up to that. And there's some of the things. I narrowed it down to three. Three things, just because I'm a Baptist pastor, and three is like the Trinity, God, Father, Spirit. Uh, And I'll just briefly mention them, Uh, just as a background for what we're going to get into. um, Lack of conviction, this is kind of a bit on us. A lack of conviction. Do I really care that people don't know their Creator, that they aren't reconciled and have peace with God through Jesus? Do I really care that apart from Him, they have no hope? There is no hope outside of the gospel of Jesus. Do I have conviction about this? Do I really own the gospel? Do I really care about it? Secondly, a lack of capability, which I've touched on. I'm just not prepared. I'm ill-equipped. And you think about it. Jesus spent three years training and teaching a group of 12 people. Right? We get to the day of Pentecost sometimes in a hurry as a church, and we're like, yeah, day of Pentecost, spirit poured out, thousands of people coming to faith, whoa, whoa. But what preceded the day of Pentecost? Three years of day-on-day teaching, of walking with Jesus, listening to him, watching him pray, watching him do his stuff, asking him questions, sitting around the campfire at night, being discipled, being prepared for the coming of the Spirit to do his work. So we can feel a lack of capability, and then it can be a lack of circumstances it's like, hey, I'm a pastor. All I do is hang around Christians. When do I get to meet people who don't know Jesus? Or, you know, I work in a Christian school. You know, my kids play with Christian kids. They go to Christian youth group. I go to Christian church. I'm I'm just around Christians the whole time. I just don't have any circumstances where I get to meet and interact with unbelievers, non-believers in a significant kind of way. So there's three reasons. Um, and... One thing I'd say too as we talk about evangelism and mission is, and you can locate yourself in any of those three, that you may not be in any of them, that's okay. But let's just get it out there and say, these are some of the things that make it hard for us to think about sharing faith and bearing witness to Jesus. But we need to understand evangelism and mission is not the only thing the church is called to do. And that's okay. There's a number of things that God has called us to do. And sometimes God gifts us in different ways, and we need to be aware of that as well. So you might be an evangelist gifted in a way to share faith that is different to the person sitting next to you. But they might be gifted in another way, another dimension of serving God within and among his people. And these are five things. I'll just give them to you quickly. I'm going to throw out a few things this morning. If you take notes, feel free to to write them down. But five key things that the Bible kind of teaches the church needs to be about. The first one is worship. The first thing we're called to do is worship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbour as you love yourself. So worship is the high calling and privilege and honour of the church, of every Christian believer, is to worship God, to be in right relationship with Him and worship Him. Secondly, discipleship, to actually daily live a lifestyle of following Jesus, of learning from Him, of becoming more like Him, of living for Him and with Him. Discipleship, actually a lifestyle. Conversion takes a moment. Discipleship takes a lifetime and people need to be Coming to Christ and to be saved, like last night we heard, being baptized, coming to faith. That's an instantaneous thing. It's a crossing of the line which has to happen. But discipleship is a lifetime of following Jesus. Thirdly, fellowship. One of the purposes of the church is community and fellowship, to gather together like this, to serve and support one another, to encourage each other, to be a body of believers that's attractional, living the new kingdom life together, learning how to do that as a community. Fourthly, ministry. God has called each person in the church to serve in ministry, to offer their gifts, their time, their talents, their treasure to the kingdom of God and to advance the gospel. And fifthly, evangelism and mission. And that's where we are. We're in that fifth purpose at the moment. So I just wanted to locate evangelism and mission in like the wider purposes of the church. It's a key central plank among a group of others. Um, And it's one of the great privileges of being a pastor, speaking of evangelism mission over the years, is seeing people come to know Jesus, actually seeing people come from no faith to saving faith. And then also helping and nurturing and supporting people to grow in their faith to know more about Jesus, to become more like him. It's a privilege and it's an honor. I remember the first baptism I did of a young guy called Brendan. Um, I was a youth pastor and, you know, a year or so into ministry. And this guy was a great guy. And he was about 17 at the time, growing up in church, kind of been around the church his whole life. Um, And we connected really well. And we had Bible studies with, with the youth and stuff. And he, he came to a place of faith for himself. Not an inherited kind of, my parents are Christian. You know, I've just inherited Christianity kind of thing. No, he came to a place where he understood the gospel. He understood who Jesus was and what Jesus had done for him. And, and he gave his life to Christ and he was baptized. And I remember at his baptism, he got up in church. And no joke, this is what he said. He said, I've been going to church all my life and to be honest, it's been as boring as poop. <laughs> this, is, and this is more of a traditional kind of morning service as well, you know. And it's just like, church has been as boring as poop. <laughs> and he, then he talked about how he'd come to know who Jesus is and he understood what Jesus had done for him and how he'd been saved by his faith in Jesus and we baptised him. And I remember thinking, this is such a blessing Imagine having a role to help people know Jesus, help people grow in Jesus. It's a privilege and it's an honour. But the thing is, it's not just for pastors and leaders to do this sort of work. It's for the whole church. Helping people come to know Jesus, helping people grow in Jesus, is something that we all own. The gospel... Paul says in Philippians, is something that we all own. And as we head to chapter one of Philippians, if you've got a Bible you kind of like to track along, and that's where we're going to be. Um, Philippians was a church plant by Paul and, and some others. You can read about it in Acts 16. The first three converts in the church of Philippi Philippi, were a wealthy businesswoman named Lydia, um, a slave girl who was delivered by a demonic spirit by Paul, And the third member was a jailer, a Roman jailer, and his whole family. That's how the church of Philippi started. So imagine the first church meeting. You've got the wealthy businesswoman, Lydia. You've got the unnamed slave girl, who would have had a name by then, who'd been delivered by a demon. And you've got a Roman jailer who were rough and treacherous kind of figures. That's your first church meeting, right? There's inclusivity. There's diversity right there at the start of the church. We've been doing inclusivity and diversity for years, people. Some people have just caught on to it in culture, but uh, the church has been doing it for 2,000 years. So the church starts and Paul's now in jail because he's been told, stop preaching Jesus. Stop talking about this name. Because the gospel in the day, we often reduce the gospel just to Effectively, the plan of salvation, that Jesus died for our sins, that he rose from the dead, and that he will come again. That is kind of part of the gospel, but the gospel was also an announcement. It was a technical word in the culture. The word was evangelion. It's two words. It means good message. Evangelos. It's Greek. Hallelujah. It's two words. Good message or good news. But it was a technical word in the culture that meant when a new emperor had ascended to power, say in the Roman Empire, an evangelion went out. A gospel went out. An announcement to all the colonies, all the cities, all the towns, the gospel is the new emperor has been appointed. Emperor Augustus or whoever. It was an announcement of an ascendancy of a new king to a throne. So, when the Christians call this message of Jesus the gospel, this is very subversive and very intimidating um, in the culture. So, what they're saying when Paul goes into Philippi, he's not just saying, Hey, will you believe in this guy Jesus and make him your Lord and Savior? Though he is saying that, he's going and saying, Hey, you know how Caesar is emperor and king, you know how he's like godlike in our culture and that we have to obey him, and to disobey him is punishable by death. Do you know he's the supreme leader in the culture? Well, actually, he's not. There's a new king. I announce a new gospel to you. You've heard the gospel of Caesar, that he is king. But I tell you a new gospel. Jesus of Nazareth is king. He is Lord. He is the new emperor, the new ruler, and he's the one you must serve. So this was a politically powerful announcement into the culture. And so Paul's in jail because obviously Caesar and his um, people who share power with him don't like people going around saying, hey, you don't have a power and authority anymore. Jesus does. And so Paul's in jail, so he's writing to the Philippians and it's beautiful what he writes. Uh, I'm not going to go through the whole chapter one. I'm just going to pull out a few things for you. He writes to encourage them um, to keep sharing the gospel, making it known. And right in the middle of the letter, like, or towards the end, chapter four, he actually names two women in the church who are having a bit of a, an argument. You imagine this. Like, you end up in the Bible because you've had an argument with another person in the church. Like, how unlucky must you be to be Evodhia and Syntyche? And he pleads. He says, I plead with you, Evodhia and Syntyche, to agree with each other. Put your differences behind you. Let's get on with sharing the gospel. I put that out there straight away just to say, look, these people were normal people like us. They had crankies and barnies and they had mix-ups and people got upset and whatever. But Paul's saying, look, stick with it, get on with it, don't be discouraged. Things aren't always perfect in the church, but we've got a job to do. We've got a mission that Jesus has given us. And the first thing Paul says to them as a people, as he writes, is about the ownership of the gospel. Who owns the gospel? Who's the stewards of the gospel? Who's the partners in the gospel? And it's not the leaders of the church per se, Paul writes to the whole community. This is what he says in verse three. I thank God every time I remember you in all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy. Paul loves the Philippian church, by the way. They're really supporting him. They're helping him in his ministry. He has a real heart for the Philippian church. He loves the Galatian church. He loves the Ephesian church. Sometimes Corinth, he's not so call about. They gave him a hard time. Um, He loves them too. But Philippians, he just writes beautifully. He just loves these people. And why is he praying with joy? Why is he filled with joy? He says this in verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now, he's rejoicing because all these believers, this new community of faith in the Roman Empire, they all share a partnership and an ownership in the gospel. They're not like outsourcing it to leaders. They're owning the gospel. They're all playing their part. Now, let us I know I jump into Greek words here, but just hear me out. The word there for partnership is a really important word. It's the word koinonia, where we get the word fellowship, community. But again, in the culture at the time, it had a really significant meaning. It was the term for a business partnership, a contract, a covenant, if you like, between people for a business a business interest or venture and it bound them together to have ownership and responsibility for that business. Any business owners here? Any people in business? Yeah. So there's things about that. If you have a partnership with someone, you share the responsibility, you share the ownership for that business and you share the fruits and the blessing of that business. And so Paul is saying to the Christian community at Philippi, I thank God for you. I rejoice in you. Because from the the first day, when they first heard the gospel, when they became believers in Jesus, when they believed that Caesar is not king, I'm not king, Jesus is king and I need to serve him and yield my life to him. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel, you share ownership with me. You get this. It's not just me being called to make the gospel known. You have a part to play. And then he says in verse seven, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart, whether I am in chains, defending or confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. All of you share in God's grace. The gospel is God's grace to humanity. It's his kindness, it's his mercy. And Paul's saying the whole church, every believer from young to old, women and men, rich and poor, whatever it might be, everyone has a part in this gospel. Everyone's part of the team. The ownership can manifest in a heap of ways that isn't directly just having to speak about Jesus. Obviously, ultimately, we do need to speak about Jesus. We'll get to that in a minute. But I think of our church, like how many people are involved in this church community, serving and partnering? Let's look at our elders there's like 20-odd elders across the, not odd, 20, you know, one or two of them. No, there's, there's a whole heap of elders who, you know, governing council, pastoral elders, meeting behind the scenes, serving, overseeing this church community. Um, there's people, you know, on the property committee like Natasha Edmonds and, and Jared McGaffin, people who are meeting, um, you know, working out all the details about how we build a new property on Bolin Road. There's Geordie up here leading worship with the team this morning. He gave me a call on Monday. I think he texted me Sunday. He's like, Nick, you know, just getting in early about the message next week. Just want to make sure I'm preparing and, you know, aligning what I'm doing with what you're preaching. I'm going, man, Wednesday's sermon prep day. This guy's amazing. He's onto it before me and I'm the pastor. Um, There's like Mandy Frisch in the kitchen today, um, Michelle Bate leading the welcoming team, um, Steve Pollard who's not here from Mount Barker, he's mowing the six acres of land on his own. He's mowing that grass. There's a whole range of ways that people in our church are serving, contributing, and that's part of how you're saying, this is my ownership of the gospel. And obviously the other clear ways that we own the gospel is that we pray together. Each of us can pray for the ministry and mission of our church. We can pray for friends and neighbours. We can pray for those who don't know Jesus. We can give and serve in different ways together. But hear this, people. The ownership of the gospel, the stewardship of the good news is for every follower of Jesus. There's no passengers in the kingdom of God. There's no bystanders, spectators in gospel work. You're either all in or you're not in. You can't be hard-hearted, half-hearted. Jesus calls for wholeheartedness, and we own the gospel together. He doesn't have a plan B, like, oh, my gosh, the church has stuffed it again. I'm going to find another (laughs) plan. He doesn't have that. This is his plan, is us, to steward the gospel, to carry the message, and to bring that to our our nations, to our neighbours. Just quickly turn to the person next to you and discuss this question. What is the gospel? You got one minute. What is the gospel? And if you're watching online, you can uh, send in your answers to me later. <laughs> well, it's a good question. And we're not gonna answer it here completely. But it probably helps to think if we own the gospel, if we're stewards of the gospel, what is the gospel? Just four quick things I wanna, I wanna give you um, because you know I, I wanna be generous. Just four quick things what the gospel is. Um, and it, it, may, it may shake you a little bit when I say this, but let's go over there anyway. It's not just the plan of salvation that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that God raised him from the dead on the third day, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father, that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. That is a part of the gospel. But the gospel in the New Testament in the Bible is literally the story of Israel. That's why we have an Old Testament. It's the Old Covenant. It's the story of the fall of humanity. It's the story of God electing Abraham, electing the people of Israel to become his partners in his work in the earth. But they failed, they fell short. The story of Israel kind of ended like, well, what's gonna happen? Then the gospel is also the story of Jesus, obviously. He's coming to fulfill what Israel failed to do, to live the perfect life, to give perfect obedience to God as the Son of God, to give his life As a ransom for us to lay down his life for us to give his life as a substitute for the wrath and the judgment that we deserve for our sins to give his life. It's the story of Jesus. So it's quadraphonic. It's like the story of Israel. It's the story of Jesus, of course, at the center. It's the plan of salvation, how God saves us through the cross, through the resurrection, through the forgiveness of sins. Jesus died for our sins. He was raised to life on the third day. That's the, the plan of salvation, how God saves us. And fourthly, the gospel is also the method of persuasion, how we communicate it. And what we see in the New Testament, what we've seen over church history, is as Christians begin to understand the story of the Old Testament, as they begin to understand the story of Jesus, as they receive and understand and and enter into the plan of salvation, how Jesus saves us, as they gossip the gospel, the method of persuasion, God does something and God saves people. As Christian people understand the fullness of the gospel, And as they begin to share that, communicate that, live that, God saves people through that gospel. That's how we were saved. That's how we came to faith. So keep that broader perspective of what the gospel is. It's full. It's beautiful. But if you want a shorthand version because you've run out of paper with your notes, the gospel is Jesus Christ. It's not a program. It's not just a teaching the gospel is a person. Jesus is the gospel. And to understand Jesus is to understand the Old Testament, is to understand the plan of salvation, what he did for us, is to understand that he wants us to gossip the gospel. And that leads to the second thing. The Philippines owned the gospel. They played their part in, in whatever way to serve the church community, the mission and ministry of Christ. But then secondly, Paul says, I want you guys to share the gospel as well. I want you to share the gospel. And each of you is in a sphere of influence, a place you're uniquely designed and your personality, your gifts, your life experience, where God can reach people through you that he can't reach through me. God can reach people through me that he can't reach through you. They're all uniquely placed. God will use your life experience, your gifts, your personality he will use all that if you allow him to help you be a person who shares the gospel with others. Verse 12 in chapter 1 of Philippians. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, that is, he's in jail, and Roman jails were dark dungeons. They were disgusting places. Um, no one helped you or fed you or clothed you or did anything. If you had no one to help you, you just rot and die in those cells. It was an awful place. It was terrible. I mean, jail's bad enough today. But in that day, it was just obscene. But Paul's like, hey, this has actually worked out well. He's like, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that being in jail, it's actually worked to advance the gospel. Listen to this guy. He's off the charts. Um, verse 13, as a result of me being in this dark dungeon, this disgusting tomb, as a result, it's become clear through the whole palace gardens, to everyone that I'm in chains for Christ just like, I'm getting to share Jesus in the prison. And the prison was located near the palace, one of Caesar's palaces. And he's rejoicing because he's like, wow, I would never have had this opportunity if I wasn't in jail. What a cheerful bloke, Right. <laughs> I'd be like, God, why have you abandoned me? I was serving you, I was trying really hard, you know, and here I'm in jail, it's awful, Jesus. I thought you loved me. And Paul's like, this is so good. Like jailers are coming to Christ people. Like prison guards are coming to know Jesus. Their whole families are turning to the Lord. So he's so excited. But then this is his second excitement, verse 14. He's like, and the other thing that's really good, church, is because I'm in jail, and I'm not there with you. You're not depending on me. I'm paraphrasing. You're not depending on me anymore to do the gospel work. Some of you guys are getting it. Oh, this is like our work. Like God has a part for me to play in this. Paul's in jail. We own the gospel. We're stewards of the gospel. I suppose we should get to work. We should, we should get going. And he says in verse 14, Because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. They had real, genuine reasons for fear in that day and that culture. Their leader is in jail under the threat of death. That's real fear, people. That's not like, oh, my friend might think I'm a bit weird if I share about Jesus. Oh, like people might look at me strange at work if I say I went to church. This is real fear. These people were facing the prospect of losing everything. And Paul's rejoicing. Rejoicing, he's like, I'm in jail. I'm preaching the gospel here. People are coming to know Jesus in the jail. And he's like, the other good thing is that because I'm not there, people aren't depending on me anymore. They're like, we gotta gotta do the gospel work, man. Turn to someone next to you and say, hey, we gotta do the gospel work, man, woman. (laughs) we're going to share the gospel. Now, listen to these words carefully, okay? This is a paraphrase of like the whole of the New Testament. Not quite. Not everyone who hears the gospel, the good news of Jesus, not everyone who hears the gospel will respond with faith and be saved. But, No one can respond with faith and be saved apart from hearing the gospel of Christ, okay? Not everyone who hears, not everyone who's invited to church, not everyone who listens will respond with saving faith, but no one will have saving faith unless they hear. If you want a scripture verse for that, read Romans 10. So your daily life plays a part into this. And we'll go on to the third point in a moment, which is living the gospel. But Paul is saying to the community, this is great. You guys are getting active and actually having the courage to stand up for Jesus. I know you love him. I know he's your Lord. I know that you appreciate what he's done for you. But you're starting to get the next step in discipleship is to actually out yourself as a believer actually be able to say, you know, I don't have all the answers, but Jesus is, is really central to my life. Jesus has made a difference in my life. Um, and if if that weeds you out, I'm sorry, but it's just the truth. And Paul says in Colossians 4, 5 to 6, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be... Full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Paul's like to the Colossians saying, Be prepared, people. Be prepared to share um, about Jesus when the opportunity arises, and it will, if you ask for it, if you are ready for it. 1 Peter 3 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to give an answer. Okay, my life's not perfect, life's tough. Kids are going through a difficult time, whatever. I've been through some hardships, but I have hope. I'm suffering some things in my life right now that are tricky, that are difficult, but I'm not without hope. Jesus gives me hope that one day all is going to be well. One day all is going to work out. I have hope, even though I'm not perfect like you, my non-believing friend. Work, and then 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. I love this verse, and you can use this anytime someone's annoying you. You should mind your own business. I'm not quite sure that's the emphasis Paul had there, but make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business. Work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. You know, one way of sharing the gospel is just to be good at your job, (laughs) show up on time, stay a bit later, go the extra mile. You can serve Jesus and make Jesus known just by being a good worker. And your boss and your co-worker's are like, hey, this person's, they're really good. Win the respect of outsiders is a way of sharing the gospel. So we do that as a church in a number of ways. Like many of you are involved in parachurch ministries. We've got Alpha happened recently, Kairos. We've got Mission Partners, Youth and Kids Um, where we're sharing the gospel uh, through our Sunday teaching, through life groups, through mission partners like Miracle Connect. Um, I checked their mission this week. This is it, to see communities of Christ's followers multiplied in the Middle East and North Africa. And as a church, we give about $120,000 a year of our income and offerings and tithes to these mission partners to help share the gospel beyond just our own neighbourhood, which is wonderful. But what about you? What's your story? Do you know the historians of the early church have worked out that they reckon that well over 80% of people who became Christians in the first 300 years did so through lay people, through non-Christian leaders, not through pastors and teachers and evangelists, but just through ordinary, everyday Christian people going about their lives, schooling, working, whatever, that most people came to faith through a relationship with someone who was a Christian. It wasn't some fancy evangelist, evangelist, um, And that's how the kingdom grew. That's how the Roman Empire eventually fell over and there was like tens of millions of Christians everywhere. Uh, As Christians, normal folk just every day lived their life for Christ and their faith became contagious. In April 1855, there was a guy by the name of Edward Kimball who was a Sunday school teacher in his church. And he had a little kid in his church who was from a poor family. He might have been 10, 11, 12. And he was working in a shoe shop during the week, this poor kid. And he was the only kid that Edward wasn't sure where he stood in his faith with Jesus. So Edward went to see him at the shoe shop one lunchtime and talked to him about Jesus. And the young lad became a Christian, became a follower of Christ. His name was D.L. Moody, which may not mean a lot to some of you, but D.L. Moody in the 19th century was one of the great, became one of the great evangelists of the church, and tens of thousands of people came to faith through D.L. Moody. But it was his Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball, that cared enough to put aside some time To actually sit with him and explain who Jesus was and invite him into faith in Jesus. But it doesn't end there. There's a whole trail of key um, evangelists that came to faith through that line from Edward Kimball. The last one was this young guy who was at an outreach event uh, in his community in America. And the preacher was preaching for three nights. Hardly anyone came to Christ. But on the last night, this young guy was convicted. And he became a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And his name was Billy Graham. And he preached to more people than anyone in the history of the church. Like millions and millions of people heard the gospel through him. And hundreds of thousands became followers of Jesus. But it all started, you know Billy Graham, many of you. Some of you know D.L. Moody. But it was Edward Kimball teaching kids on a Sunday. You saw our kids up here today. See Youth Friday Night. It started just by faithful teaching, someone owning the gospel enough, being willing to share the gospel enough that they went to the one and led them to Christ, this one poor poor shoemaker and millions of lives were transformed. So don't underestimate what you're doing now for the Lord. It doesn't have to be some big, I know we talk about the Billy Grahams and stuff, but it doesn't have to be big like that. It's normal folk like us doing God's work and that's what he gets his kingdom work done. Thirdly, living the gospel. Paul says in verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's one thing for the church, for Christians to own the gospel, to steward the gospel. God's given us this responsibility. It's one thing to share the good news of Jesus and to make Jesus known. That's really important. But then Paul's like, I want you to live gospel lives. I want you to live lives of grace, lives that reflect Christ, reflect his character, reflect his love, reflect his care for the weak and the ostracized, the outsider, for the hurt, the hurting, the broken, for the the lost sinner, the prodigal. I want you to reflect Jesus in your living whatever happens conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ the king of kings the lord of lords who left glory to come to this earth to come and live among us to give his life for us and he didn't have to he didn't need any of us he could have wrapped up the whole thing and said forget it I'm just done with humanity I'm just wiping the slate clean And yet he came and he gave his life and he lived a perfect life and he offered that love, that mercy, that forgiveness to those who trust in him, who believe in him. Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Just as we wrap up, I want to, and I hope I mean that, I really do. (laughs) I just got a couple more things to say. But I looked into this week, I kind of knew about it, but I looked into it a bit more in detail, that when people were baptised in the early church, we've got the accounts in Acts, and it's pretty sudden, right? Someone believes in Jesus, and then they're baptised, and that's fine. That's a biblical pattern that we can do. But as time went on in the church, what they started to discover was that because it was persecution, because it was difficult, because it was hard to be a Christian in that Roman Empire, they started to see people falling away. And so the church started to go, okay, well, fine, believe and be baptised, but we've got to prepare people more. And they kind of went back a bit to Jesus' model where he takes 12 and he has three years with them before the Spirit comes and before they're released into ministry, three years. And just listen to this. So this is probably 100 or so years into the life of the church. This is what they started to do. If you wanted to follow Jesus and be baptised, you had to go through around two years of preparation First, before they'd baptize you, around two years. And then at the end of two years, if you felt ready and the church community felt you were ready, you then went into it like this intensive period of about seven weeks to eight weeks in the lead up to Easter Sunday where they would baptize people. And I've been to the Middle East and I've visited ancient church ruins where they, the old baptistry's there in the shape of a cross, this big pool in the, in the ruins. And it was a big thing for the early Christian communities. And they would instruct you about Christian living over that two years. Um, Over the eight-week period, they would do biblical teaching and doctrine. There'd be daily prayer for you and the laying on of hands to exercise idols and demons, anointing you with the sign of the cross regularly. There'd be fasting and prayer from the church leaders and elders for you. You would have a, a mentor and someone who would meet with you daily for prayer. They would invite you to all-night prayer times. This is before you get baptised. This is before you confess Christ, right? Um, You'd have to confess your sins through that time and renounce them. And then publicly at Easter, you'd have to confess your faith, which again was very costly. And people started to see you became a Christian, you had to renounce the devil and accept Jesus as Lord. You were baptised on Easter Sunday. And then at the end of the service, the baptism time, they would come back into the church with white robes and take their first communion. They were ready. <laughs> and when the hard times came, when the persecution came, when the difficulties came, they were staying with Jesus. They are ready. And my friends, we are in a time in the world without sounding freaky or scary, but we are at a point where it is a difficult season for the world. Things could get more difficult. They could get more difficult to be followers of Jesus in this country. Are we prepared to walk with Christ even when it's costly? I'm not saying that we should do that. I'm just saying that, We need to take seriously the ownership of the gospel, the sharing of the gospel, the living of the gospel. That means understanding our faith. That means understanding who Jesus is. That means understanding what God has done for us and living into that and not just having some quick decision in the moment, but we don't really back it up. We fade away. So we want to make sure as a church we keep doing that, preparing people. That's why life groups are important. Sunday teaching You know, get along to Sundays as much as you can. Be around the preaching of God's word, the gospel, as we share it together here. Uh, Let's own the gospel, let's share the gospel, and let's live the gospel in your marriage, in your family, in your parenting, in your single life, in your workplace, in your business, in your study. These are all places that God gifts us opportunities to own the gospel, to share it, to live it, and that's what he calls us to. Just one last thing, and this is my last thing. Promise, um, the team can come up now, and uh, we. I think um, just a quick thing I thought of this week as as we're preparing, like coming in together as two churches. Uh, you know, on our database as a campus, we have like a thousand people on our database, which is great, and everyone's known and precious to God. Um, if you track down to who's actually a church member, who who says they're a member and is a member of this church. It's about 250. It was about 180 before the amalgamation. Mount Barker had about 70 members. So we had about 250 people who are members of the church. And you might go, well, I don't need to be a member to be a follower of Jesus. And that's right, you don't. But as a pastor, it can be helpful to know who's our spiritual family here? Who, who says that this body of believers is my family, my community that I'm committed to? This is my spiritual home right now. One of the ways that you signify that is through membership, through being a member of this church community. Now, I'm going to take off my wedding ring. Oh, don't you hate that? <laughs> Who knew that gold shrunk, right, as you got older? Um, now, my wedding ring doesn't make me married to dear Amanda, does it? No, my vows to her before God, that's what cements our marriage, yeah? doesn't make me married but it symbolizes our marriage and that's what church membership is I think and and this signifies to other people hey I am her she is mine it's a covenant it's a symbol of the covenant and I think we could look at church membership like that it's not like a cult we're not saying if you're a member of the church that you can never get out you're free to come and go but you're saying this is my church home this is my church family this is where God has called me to own the gospel locally to share the Gospel locally and to live the Gospel communally. And it's a way of signifying that, symbolising that. Say, these are my people. And when I look at our membership list, I go, okay, these are people who have said, this is my home for owning the Gospel, sharing the Gospel, living the Gospel. These are my people. And God may call you out or send you out somewhere else at some point, that's fine. But I want to encourage you as a simple step to think about, being a member of this church community, symbolizing your commitment to Christ as a commitment to His body, His, His bride of Christ here. The gospel glorifies Jesus. The gospel transforms our lives, and the gospel reveals hope. As we share communion, as we come around the table, the gospel is in this meal. Because the gospel is not a proposition, it's not a program. It's a person, King Jesus. Jesus owned the gospel by His own blood. Jesus shared the gospel through His death and His dying breath where He said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Jesus lived the gospel in His life, His resurrection, He is the gospel. He lives. He lives here now. He is among us by His Spirit. And I invite you, if you have not believed in Jesus, if you have not had saving faith in Him and declared Him to be Lord and King of your life, you can do that this morning. He invites you. Because whether you believe or not, ultimately Jesus is Lord of your life. And you will meet Him one day, In worship and praise and tears of rejoicing, or in terror and trembling at the fear of judgment, He invites you today to put your faith in Him. Lord, we thank you for this meal. Let's stand together. Thank you for this meal. Thank you for the invitation to this table that on the night, Jesus, that you were betrayed, you took the bread, you gave thanks to God. And you said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And you took the cup and you said, this is the blood of the new covenant. This represents my blood shed for you, my death for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. When you drink this in the future, remember me, remember the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus was raised to life on the 3rd day. Jesus ascended as king and will come again to judge the living and the dead. Lord, we thank you that you invite all to this table. No one is excluded, Lord. You invite them to put their faith in you, their trust in you. So we come to the table, Lord. For those of us who believe, we come to say, "Lord, yes, we own the gospel." We take that seriously, Lord. Yes, we want to share the gospel, Lord. We're prepared to speak for you. Yes, Jesus, we want to live the gospel. And Lord, I invite those who may yet not yet believe that this morning, they don't have to wait two years to be prepared. They can come and take this meal and say, yes, Jesus, I believe in you. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast.